with our study through Paul's first letter to Timothy. We're beginning chapter 2 this morning. Paul asked Timothy to serve as pastor to the church in Ephesus because he had some serious concerns about some things going on in that church. There were men teaching strange doctrines. Timothy needed to call them out for their errors. He was to do that in the context of emphasizing the need for sound doctrine. The gospel needed to be made very clear so that people would be enabled to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love their neighbor as themselves. Which, by the way, this idea of love for neighbor includes correcting false teachers. Scripture is clear. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. So one aspect of love was Timothy confronting people who were teaching what was wrong. We don't usually think of love that way, but that's true. So as Paul was speaking about the, the glory of God's law alongside the blessedness of the glorious gospel, he could not help but think about how God had transformed his own life. And so he reminds Timothy of that faithful saying, uh, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul adds his testimony, his own experience kind of tied into that, and he says, among whom I am the foremost. Paul just marveled that God would take a man who was a violent persecutor of the church and actually save him. He was a notorious sinner for whom God had revealed his perfect patience and then brought him to salvation in his time. And Paul, by the way, recognized he continued to deal with sin because he said, I am the foremost of sinners. He wasn't sugarcoating stuff. He knew there was still sin in his heart. Paul then turns his attention to Timothy after talking about his own conversion, his own experience. Timothy had been called, had been ordained to ministry. That ministry included what he was doing now, pastoring a church with some real challenges. So Paul exhorts him to fight the good fight, to fight the fight of faith. Christian life is a battle against sin, against temptation. It's a battle to stand against sin and stay actively focused on seeking to glorify God with our life throughout the day, whatever the circumstance might be. And it's a battle every Christian has to fight. Paul says that the way to fight the good fight is by keeping faith and a good conscience. So we're supposed to stand firm on sound doctrine. We're not, we cannot compromise the gospel. We must also keep a good conscience by dealing honestly with God about our sin, by really focusing on a genuine heart relationship with the Lord and not just going through the motions. Well, to highlight the importance of that, at the end of chapter 1, Paul spoke of two people, Hymenaeus and Alexander. These men professed to be Christians, uh, may even have been leaders in the church. It seems they, they were teachers in some, in some regard. But they rejected the need to keep a good conscience. And so by rejecting the need to keep a good conscience, they ended up compromising the faith to fit with what they wanted to approve of. They did not order their life with a conscious faith and a dependence on the gospel of Christ. As a result, 
They suffered shipwreck as far as their faith was concerned. So all through this letter, first chapter, and we're going to see it more as we go, Paul emphasizes the need for sound doctrine, just to continue in the faith and uphold the truth. That's a real priority in the church. What the opening verses of chapter 2, he emphasizes something else that also must be a priority in our lives and in the church, and that's prayer. So, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life and all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So three things that we'll focus on in these four verses. First, a focus on prayer. Second, specifically, uh, prayer for uh, that deals with the uh, responsibilities of civil authorities and even our responsibilities as Christian citizens. And then finally, things, further things he has to say about salvation. And based on the connection that was in chapter 1, I believe all this is still being spoken of in the context of fighting the good fight of faith. Prayer is in a big part of fighting that fight. So our first main point is this. Fighting the good fight of faith requires that believers and churches have a commitment to prayer. Every believer, not just ministers, of course Paul's writing to a minister, but every believer, not just ministers, have the responsibility to fight the good fight by keeping faith and a good conscience. The central focus in keeping faith has to do with understanding and responding to the gospel in faith. As Paul pointed out in 1 Timothy 1, 8 and 9, God used his law to actually show us that we are all lawless and rebellious. Every person in the history of the world has violated the Ten Commandments in countless ways in their life. And that's what it is to be lawless and rebellious. And since God is holy and just, that means that we are all under his wrath. We're under his condemnation. That's bad news. And it's the bad news that prepares you for the good news of the gospel. The good news is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save lawless and rebellious people, sinners. By his grace, he convicts us of our sin, shows us where we've fallen short. The Holy Spirit then enables us to see that our only hope of salvation is faith in Jesus Christ. He's the one who paid the price, of course, for our sin by his sacrificial death on the cross. He's the one who fully accomplished our salvation when he rose again from the dead. And it's by faith in Christ that we stand before God as people who are fully forgiven and also completely righteous, all in Christ. So that's the faith, the basic, the faith that we're supposed to hold on to. But we also have to walk out that faith. That's what sanctification is about, is walking out that faith. And that's what Paul calls fighting the good fight of faith. There's trials, temptations all along the way. It truly is a fight, and it's a fight that we, every, we all have to engage in or we're going to get beaten because we're not fighting. One of the most important weapons we have for this fight is prayer. So in these verses, Paul wants us to see that every Christian, every church, must give priority to prayer. So in verse 1, we see this point. Prayers and petitions are to be made on behalf of, all, of men of all sorts. 
prayers are to be made on behalf of all men of all sorts. Paul begins verse 1 by saying, first of all, now usually when I see first of all, I'm looking for a second of all and a third of all. But he's not really thinking of it in that way. He's really using the idea that, say, in prayer must be given the highest priority. That's really what the idea here is. He's been talking about the importance of sound doctrine based on the word of God. Scriptures must be on that list of the highest of priorities for every believer. But that's not all. You can't fight the good fight without also having prayer. So Paul urges, exhorts us to see the pressing need of prayer. So to further emphasize the importance of prayer, he uses three different words to actually describe it. The first word is entreaty. Entreaty really speaks of making petitions for things that are needed. Prayers really speaks of maybe desires for things, things that please God. Petitions adds the idea of earnest pleading, including prayerful complaints or even laments that might be there, not just for ourselves, but for others. But in reality, you try to divide those words out. In reality, there's not a whole lot of difference between those three words. Paul seems just kind of be piling up words on top of each other to emphasize what an important aspect of the Christian life prayer is. We need to be coming to the Lord in prayer as an important part of our worship. We need to be bringing our needs and, the cons- and concerns to the Lord in prayer. We need to be bringing petitions on behalf of others to the Lord in prayer on a regular basis. Prayer is an indication of the fact that we are needy. It's an indication of the fact that we are weak. It's an indication of the fact that we don't know everything, that we need lots of help. So it's an important way of humbling ourselves. Um, If we are people who don't pray very much, it pretty much goes without saying we're probably pretty proud people. Because if we don't pray much, we're actually thinking we don't need a lot of help. I got it figured out, so I don't really need to pray about these things. But prayer really encourages us and helps us as far as humbling ourselves. Well, Paul further says that these entreaties, prayers, and petitions are to be made on behalf of all men. How do you do that? I mean, what he does not mean, I feel quite confident of this, he does not mean just do a generic prayer that says, God, just bless everybody in the world. Okay, I got that command fulfilled. No, that's not what he means. Can you literally play? How many billions of people are there in the world now? I don't know. Can you get a list? Well, it's going to change tomorrow. You you just can't pray literally for all the names of all people in the world at a given time. It's not possible. It can't be done. So what does he mean? I think what he means is we're to be praying for people of all sorts, different categories of people. We're supposed to be praying for fellow Christians. We should be doing that, especially those we know best who are part of our own, our own church. We need to be praying for ministers, for the elders, for deacons, leaders. We need to be praying for other local churches, not just ours. We need to be praying for family. We need to be praying for friends. We also need to be praying for fellow citizens 
in the country in which we live, in our state. We need to be praying for people who are enemies of the faith, even persecutors. We need to be praying for Jewish people to put their faith in Jesus as the Christ. We need to be praying for people in countries all over the world, like Taiwan, like we did today. We need to be praying for missionaries, church planters, who are seeking to reach out with the gospel. I mean, and the list could go on. But the idea, there's different categories, there's different sorts of people we should be praying for. I've seen several tools over the years to kind of help us do that. I'll mention a couple. One is the pastor I served under for a number of years, uh, Peter Lord, designed a prayer notebook called the 2959 Plan. He was never, never very imaginative with his titles. 2959 Plan meant 29 minutes and 59 seconds a day spent in prayer. That's where you got the number from. And it's a way, it's a notebook, it's a way actually to organize your prayer life every day. So you're praying for different people, different circumstances, different countries, missionaries. It's a way to organize your prayer through the week. And, you know, very helpful. I've used it for many, many years, or at least the, 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 the principles that are there. Matthew Henry did a book. I think I have it here, yeah. It's called A Way to Pray. I think there's a couple different versions of this by Matthew Henry. He does the same thing, but in different ways. What he does is he actually gives you categories with scriptural prayers that you can use to guide you in praying in each in, in all these kind of things that I mentioned, plus many more. I mean, almost any category you can think of, he's got some prayers listed there to help guide you in those prayers. It's a very helpful resource. We have tried to honor this exhortation by Paul by printing a prayer sheet that's in your bulletin every week. And every week, the prayer sheet focuses on a different country. We'll focus on missionaries or ministries or other local churches. We'll have a prayer for our nation that will vary from week to week. We'll have a prayer for our church, for a different member or family that's a part of our church. That's also why we have a video that directs us in praying for a different country every Sunday. All that's an attempt to obey this command. Pray for all men. And I think, in my mind, that's the idea that Paul had here. We cannot literally pray for every single person by name. It's just not possible. But we can pray for people of all sorts, and I believe we're supposed to. The second aspect of prayer that Paul speaks of is this. The giving of thanks to God should be a regular part of the believer's prayer, the giving of thanks, believer's life. So in addition to prayers, petitions, uh, we also need to be people who are thankful. Thank, thanksgiving is also an important part of, of prayer, of course, an important part of worship. It's hard to even think of real prayer that doesn't include thanksgiving in it and probably all through it in various ways. Uh, it acknowledges that God is a good God. When you give thanks, you're saying, God, you're good. You're give, when you're giving thanks, you're saying, God is wise. When you're giving thanks, you're acknowledging his providential work, not just in your life, but in, all over the world. You're acknowledging God's ongoing provision in every area of your life by giving thanks. So if you want to be a person who walks by faith, you need to be a person who regularly gives thanks to God. 
Because apart from that, if we aren't people who regularly give thanks, we're going to become people who take God's gifts for granted. We're also probably going to become people who are bitter because there are going to be all kinds of things that upset you on a regular basis, and the last thing you want to do is give thanks for it. So you become resentful and bitter. Thanksgiving is so important, so important in our life. I was reading from Psalm 111 this week, and uh, just such a great focus in that psalm on praising and thanking God for his works. I'm just going to read you a few phrases from Psalm 111. It says, Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. He says, Splendid and majestic is your work. He says, He has, he has, he has made his wonderful acts to be remembered. He has made known to his people the power of his works. I mean, there's no way that a person can be that mindful of the works of God without also giving thanks. It just goes hand in hand. It has to. So fighting the good fight of faith means that believers, churches have a commitment to prayer, including thanksgiving. Well, continuing on that focus on prayer, we see this next emphasis in verse 2. So our second point is this, fighting the good fight of faith calls believers in churches to regularly pray for kings and all in authority. First of all, then, it says, I urge you, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life and all godliness and dignity. So Paul makes it clear in verse 2 that praying for men of all sorts includes praying for kings and, and, and those in authority. But here he doesn't just give a general exhortation to pray for kings and those in authority. He gives a specific thing we're supposed to be praying for those who are in that, in that particular realm. So there's a very specific purpose and direction in the prayer that we're supposed to make. It's really interesting, and I think even instructive, that Paul has just said, pray for all men. And like I said, I think that's men of all sorts, from all categories of life. And then he picks out one. He picks out one category to emphasize, which is probably not the category we would have thought of. But it's the one he thought of. Matter of fact, a lot of churches try to stay away from anything connected to government because you don't want to mix politics. Well, Paul did. Right away, he did. He didn't shy away from it. So it's amazing that that's what, he, that's what he pulls out right away there at the beginning to give instruction on. In his prayer, he's helping us to, he's reminding us of how civil magistrates are supposed to govern, what their responsibility is. He's reminding us. So, from verse 2, we see this. Believers should pray for authorities to govern in such a way that order order and justice is maintained so that law-abiding citizens can live peaceful lives. Paul says specifically, he says, we're praying for them so we can lead a tranquil and quiet life. Peaceful lives. Well, how can that happen? 
Well, Paul has some very direct things to say about what the responsibilities of those who serve as civil magistrates are because he's the one who ordained government. And so he also ordains what the, what the responsibilities are. Romans 13 is one of the places that gives, gives us some of the most detail on that. And there he actually describes civil magistrates as being God's servants, or you could even describe, even define it as God's ministers. So how are God's magistrates, civil magistrates, how are they supposed to be his servants? How are they supposed to be his ministers in that realm? Well, they're supposed to see to it that those who do wrong are punished. Civil magistrates are described as ministers of God who are avengers who bring wrath on the one who practices evil. So that's what they're supposed to do. But they're also called, this is again in Romans 13, they're also called to be rulers who are not a cause of fear for good behavior. So those who are law-abiding citizens are praised by civil magistrates. Of course, this clearly assumes that civil magistrates know the difference between right and wrong. They know the difference between what's good and what's evil. And since these are biblical standards that we're talking about, what's good, what's evil, the assumption here that I think, I don't, can't think of another assumption really to make here, except that God is the one who defines what is good and what is evil. So if those who do wrong are punished and those who do right are praised, getting us back to 1 Timothy 2 now, that means we're living a tranquil and quiet life. Peaceful lives. Living peaceful lives, which calls the civil magistrates, are governing in the way that order in such a way that order and justice is being maintained. So Paul tells us that he wants individual believers, he wants churches to pray for kings and all authority in this way. This is God's will, his moral will, about what civil government is supposed to do. And so our prayers reflect that. Again, keep in mind, this is not being political. This is being a good Christian. This is fighting the good fight of faith. Well, Paul goes beyond that. He also tells us next, believers should pray for authorities to govern in such a way that they are able to pursue true godliness in all areas of life. Pursue true godliness in all areas of life. It honors God when believers are free to live godly lives in the nation in which they live. Living a life of godliness is vitally important for every Christian. I mean, it's essential to fighting the good fight of faith, to live a life of godliness. And he also mentions dignity there. The word dignity can be translated as seriousness or reverence. So there's a sense of having the freedom to live all of life in the fear of the Lord. It's having the freedom to honor the Lord in all that we do, which ties directly into godliness. Godliness is a general term that really refers to all aspects of living out the Christian life. We're not instructed to pray that we'd be free to do some godly things here and there. We're to pray for all godliness. 
the prayer and exhortation to pray is that godliness would be a part of every area of life and that that would be welcomed, not hindered. So what does that include? Well, it includes, of course, personal prayer, devotion to God when you're thinking about all godliness. It would include things we do in our family to seek to live as a Christian family, like prayer, Bible reading, teaching the Christian faith and biblical principles to our children. Godliness would improve, obviously, uh, participating in uh, public worship, attending Bible classes, having interaction, fellowship with Christians. Godliness is having the freedom to do your work, whatever your work is, to do your work to the glory of God. It's having the freedom to share the gospel with someone in a friendly way. It's having the freedom to stand firm for biblical standards of right and wrong, even when others disagree. These are just a few general examples. But the idea is that godliness is is part of, in every respect, is part of living out the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. So what he's saying is, godliness basically is saying, Jesus Christ is my Lord, and I want to live accordingly. That's what we're all supposed to do as Christians. So we have to pursue godliness if we're going to fight the good fight of faith. Paul directs us as individuals and as churches to pray for kings and those in authority so that order and biblical justice will be maintained. He directs us to pray that it will be perfectly legal for Christians to practice godliness in every area of life in the fear of the Lord. Then Paul ties these things into something else that he wants to emphasize. Verses 3 and 4. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So in our final point, we see very simply that Believers, the believer's attention to prayer and godliness is pleasing to God our Savior, pleasing to him. I mean, verse 3 is just such a simple verse, but it tells us in a very direct way what the most important thing in life is. The reason you and I exist is to be pleasing to God. That's why you've been given breath today, is to be pleasing to God. That's why we exist Everything in life falls under this purpose. We're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength. That's everything. As the catechism says, we're to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the whole purpose of life. That's it. So we're reminded here that the goal of every Christian is to love, glorify, and be pleasing Be pleasing to the Lord in all of life. So what is Paul referring to when he says this is good and acceptable in the sight of God? Well, he's referring to what he said in verse 1 and 2. The emphasis on entreaties, prayers, petitions. Prayer and all things included in prayer are pleasing to God. Let me give you a few reasons. Let's just think about that for a minute. Give you a few reasons on why prayer is pleasing to God. First off, the only reason that we can come to the Lord in prayer is is because Jesus Christ is the one mediator between God and man. So every time we pray, we're exalting Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ is the one who suffered the wrath that each, each of us deserved because of our sin. He provided that forgiveness. He's provided that righteousness so that we can actually stand in the presence of perfectly holy God and pray and give thanks and worship and ask for help. So the very fact that we pray honors Jesus Christ, which honors God. It pleases him. Secondly, prayer is, a, is, is the humble admission that we need the Lord. It's just admitting I need help, and the one who can help me is God. I need wisdom. I need help to understand this issue, whatever it might be. I need strength because I'm having a hard time just making it through for this particular challenge, whatever it might be. I need patience. I need patience to endure. I need the ability to persist to, 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 for long suffering, whatever, that, whatever the situation is. Some, there's a situation where we are just desperate for God to intervene in some way. And all that does, it humbles ourself and it exalts the Lord, which praises God, gives him glory. Another thing I'll mention here, we could, you could, so much you can say about prayer. I just want to mention a few things. But prayer is one of the most important means of grace that's been given to us. The scriptures are an invaluable means of grace that we need. God uses the scriptures in our lives in so many ways. He also uses the prayer to work in our lives. That's a means of grace that he uses to cause us to understand and to grow and be helped in our own Christian life. He uses our prayers as a means of grace in other people's lives as we pray for other people about what they're dealing with. So it's an important means of grace so, therefore, it's good and acceptable in the sight of God to pray. Well, what else is Paul describing as being good and acceptable? Well, prayer for people of all sorts, including kings and those in authority. <coughs> as we noted, God has a very important purpose for civil magistrates. They're to serve him by upholding what is good and punishing what is evil. Now, as simple as that sounds, that's a major challenge. Uphold what is good punish what is evil praise God there are civil magistrates all over our country if we just think of our country that are really seeking to do that really are seeking to uphold good and punish evil there are others who's come nowhere close they're doing the complete opposite they've got evil and good completely mixed up so therefore there's no way that they're in line with what God has required we're supposed to pray about that. We're supposed to pray for them. And as we pray for them, that's good and acceptable in the sight of God. The other thing that is good and acceptable to the Lord is when Christians live their lives in all godliness and serious reverence for the Lord. So obviously when a believer is living a God-honoring life, God is pleased. And it notice it says this is, this is acceptable in his sight, which reminds us that we are always in his sight. There is nothing that we do that is out of the sight or the understanding, the knowledge of God. We all live in his sight. That can kind of remind us of our sin and be careful, reverence, fear of God. It also is encouraging because when you're going through tough stuff, you want to make sure you're not in that by yourself. Well, he's with you, and he's, he's not un uninformed. He knows exactly what's going on so 
as he loves it when we seek to honor him in the everyday challenges of life. Well, notice in verse 3, God speaks of the Lord as God our Savior. This reminds us that salvation is of the Lord. Salvation was purposed by God the Father in eternity. Salvation was earned by God the Son in history. Salvation is applied to his people by God the Spirit. Salvation is of the Lord. He is God our Savior. And it's in that context that we read this next phrase in verse 4. God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So from this we see that God our Savior desires to see men of all sorts come to the knowledge of the truth of the gospel and be saved. He uses the God-honoring life of believers as a testimony to this end. As a testimony to this end. God, our Savior, desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. I mean, just such an amazing and comforting truth. I mean, you just tease it out just a little bit. You don't have to go very far. What this means is God desires people who are living in lawless, rebellious lives against him to see them be saved. That's his heart. That's grace. That's mercy. People who deserve eternal condemnation because God is just. His heart is for them to be saved. He desires for them to see themselves as sinners. Desires for them to embrace Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Desires for them to know the truths of the scriptures and more. He desires for them to live lives that are good, acceptable in his sight. Okay, now before we go any further with this particular verse, we need to address something here. This verse actually begs the question. If God desires all men to be saved, then why are all men not saved? First, we have to recognize the fact that it's true. God, all men are not saved. Hell is real. It truly exists. There are many, many people who have died, not only people who have not believed in Christ, but have vehemently rejected him most of their life. There is only one Savior, Jesus Christ. There is only one way to be saved, by faith in Jesus Christ. So the fact that Paul includes the line, come to the knowledge of the truth, makes it clear that the truth of the gospel is central here. He's not saying that all men will be saved regardless of what they believe because salvation is tied to coming to the knowledge of the truth. So they're saved by the gospel. So could this verse be saying that God desires all men to be saved, but he just doesn't have the power to bring it to pass? He just can't do it. Isn't he almighty? Isn't he all-powerful? You can find some verses that say that. We know that's true. So how do we understand this? I mean, God is almighty. 
And he will not have his plans frustrated by men and women who just won't line up and get in, get in, in line. You cannot shake your fist in God's face and end up stopping him from fulfilling his purposes. You can't do that. None of us can. We think we can, because we're all fools in that regard. But you can't stop God from doing what he has purposed to do. He is almighty. You can't stop it. Thank God we can't stop it. I don't want you being almighty. You don't want me being almighty. God's the one we want to be almighty, the God who is full of grace and truth and mercy. So praise God he's almighty. So what does this mean? Well, let me give you a couple things that are helpful to me in understanding what this is talking about. First, this is talking, I think, about God's will of disposition that I've heard it described as, God's will of disposition. Remember, and he says here, he's described as God our Savior right here in this passage. Therefore, he has the disposition to see all men be saved. But in his perfect wisdom, God has not decreed that all men without exception will be saved. Those who will be saved are described in several ways. They're described as those who were chosen before the foundation of the world. They're described as the elect of God. They're described as those predestined in Christ. I know those are uncomfortable verses. I still remember sitting in a Bible study when I was in high school and reading uh, through those early verses, early verses in Ephesians chapter 1 and reading it through fast because they don't want to think about it. You got to think about it. If you don't think about it, you're not going to understand what the scripture has to say. So the verses may be uncomfortable, but we can't pretend they don't exist. That is who God has decreed will be saved. And thank God you don't have a list of who that is, and I don't either. What we do know is that all those who put their faith in Jesus Christ who are born again by the Spirit, that's the elect. Those who repent of, their, of, of, of sin and put their faith in Christ. But you don't have a list. So, God's will of disposition versus his will of what he decrees in his wisdom. Second way to understand this verse. And, 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 and these two ideas tie together, I think. Comparing verse 4 with verse 2. In verse 2, we are told to pray for all men. It is not possible for us to pray individually for all men. We just can't do that. So we know that's not what he meant. Instead, I believe he means to pray for men of all sorts in various categories. One of those classifications he gave to kind of show us that's what he meant is those who are kings and those in authority. Well, in a similar way, we come to verse 4, that God desires all men to be saved. I think, once again, Paul is saying here, men of all sorts, men in all different categories. The Bible speaks of people from every tribe, tongue, 
people and nation. That's men of all sorts. People who are rich, people who are poor, people who are men, people who are women, people who are boys, people who are girls. Just a category, just various people, men of all sorts. So I think that in my mind, those are two things that can help us understand what he's saying here. But what we don't want to do is let our uh, understanding, ability to understand this, somehow water down the verse because that's easy to do. And this quote from Patrick Fairbairn that's on your sheet, I think does a good job at, at, at making sure we don't do that. He says, God has unfolded for one and all alike the terms of reconciliation. He is willing, nay, desirous for his own glory's sake that men should everywhere embrace him. And for this end has committed to his church the ministry of reconciliation, charging it upon the conscience of her members to strive and pray that all without exception be brought to the saving knowledge of the truth. God's glory is at stake in the salvation of sinners, and we want all that we do to be good and acceptable in his sight. So if it's God's desire for all men to be saved, and come to the knowledge of the truth, that should be our desire as well. Part of fighting the good fight of faith is having a genuine concern for the salvation of people around us. It's also important to see that this desire to see people of all sorts come to the knowledge of the truth of the gospel is in the context of praying for kings and those in authority. It seems to be saying here that when civil magistrates lead in such a way, governing such a way, that we can live quiet and peaceful lives in all godliness and dignity, that is most conducive to people who are lost hearing the gospel and seeing an example of the salvation lived out before their eyes. When Christians are free to live out their faith at home, in the workplace, at their church, the gospel is more evident to the people around them. And that's good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Just a privilege to live with the, with the pleasure of God our Savior being our goal in all that we do. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for reminding us, exhorting us, realize once again to be remind, reminded afresh of the importance of prayer my guess is probably every one of us struggle with prayer thank you for the times that we do pray and thank you for the desire that you've given us to pray but every one of us know that we there's a lot more praying we should probably we should be doing i think we all realize that Lord, I think that's why we find these constant reminders through the scripture that we need to pray and offer up entreaties and petitions and thanksgivings. So help us, Lord, to be people who are growing in our prayer in ways that are pleasing to you. Lord, I also want to thank you just for the emphasis here on um, salvation of people of all sorts. I mean, 
you have placed all of us at this particular time in history, living at this particular place, and having the particular family and the particular friends and the people associates that we are connected with, the neighbors that we live near. You're the one who has placed us where we are. Lord, I ask for myself for a greater desire to see all come to the knowledge of, sal- of their need for salvation in Christ. Lord, help me to grow in that. Help us to grow in that, to be more conscious of that. So, Lord, thank you. Now, if you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, um, as we've noted, we are all lawless and rebellious before him. We all are deserving of condemnation. But a prayer like this will be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I'm a sinner. I have not lived up to what you called me to be. But I thank you that Christ Jesus did come into this world to save sinners, sinners like me. And I want to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. I want to receive him and live with him as the Lord of my life. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make a note on your tear-off, or those who are watching can reach out to us through the website. It's in the name of Christ that we...